Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And on this episode, it might be a bit mersh, but we don't mind. It's time to weigh anchor and head for Pedro. And Brant and I are both in our broisters today. Boy, broisters. howdy. We're in our broisters. That's that's Pedro speak for swelter pad. Okay. We're definitely in our broisters. It's SST 138, the post-Mersh Volume 1 comp. And we've got a special guest, Brant, that uh, is very cool to have on the show this time around. Yeah, Stuart Sweezy's on the podcast from the awesome Desolation Center documentary. Yeah, some great tidbits on the Minuteman in that interview in particular, but also about the documentary and some other cool stuff that he's up to. And, you know, our listeners know we have covered these tracks before. We'll get into that in History Lesson uh, Part 1. But I got to tell you, um, it was really nice to put on the Minuteman this week, have a good excuse to listen to them. And I remember when we went through these records way, way back for the first time, and I think you and I were kind of anxious to get past uh, the the Watt with the pick era, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but dude, I was just digging it. It's amazing how much these records have still got some, uh, you know, some staying power. And I'm loving the Watt with the pick era this time around. Love it. Well, I'm the thing for me is I'm such a fan of uh, Double Nickels that, you know, that's always always has been my go-to Minutemen, and I, I maybe haven't spent as much time with these early ones. And yeah, I agree. I was just digging the hell out of this volume one this week. Yeah. It's actually, you know, even though we've been through these tracks too, it's an important comp. Like these post-merge comps are some of the first ways that a lot of people found out about the Minutemen. So it's, uh, it's important that we give them their due for sure. Before we do that, you corn dog, you got any spiels for the people? I do, yeah. I have quite a few, so I'm going to hold off on my get this shit off my phone segment for until next week. Oh, man. I'm going to bump it a week. Okay, I have that's a, good. My pen could use a break. <laughs> I have a podcast shout-out. It's for the End on End podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Brian and Jeff uh, do a great job. Jeff uh, is in the band Too Many Voices that we like. Yes. Jeff Kaplan, he joined the podcast, I don't know, maybe 10 episodes back. Uh, and, and it's been going really good. It's a Discord podcast for people who don't know. They're kind of doing what we're doing, going through the Discord uh, catalog. There's a great episode on the Void side of the Faith Void split, which I'm a big fan of. I love Void. They talk to uh, Chris Stover, from the bassist of Void. And in that episode, Jeff mentions that rule of thumb featuring Dave Smalley 7-inch that you spieled about a few weeks ago. Right on. And they talk a bit about rule of thumb and the Staten Island, New York scene, which is where they're from. Yep. John Lisa from that band had a label called Tragic Life. And also, we got a message from Andrew Zito, a listener with a great Instagram page called Writers in Town. And he let us know the band changed members and became Sleeper and later changed their name to Serpico. He re recommended Sleeper's Preparing Today for Tomorrow's Breakdown, which was produced by Stefan Egerton and Bill Stevenson. Have you ever heard of that, Ryan? I have not. And it's so weird that you have this spiel because I've got a 
not an SS tree spiel to come here. I've got a Discord tree spiel coming up. So this is, and it's related to Faith Void kind of, so cool. Okay. That's a really great record. You'll like that a lot. It's right up your alley. Right on. Uh, really great riffy 90s punk. They have an earlier album and some singles too. And then the Serpico stuff, they recommended Feel Bad Rainbow, Andrew did. Uh, it's also really good, a little poppier. Didn't grab me as much as the Sleeper record did, but I definitely want to... They also have other stuff, so I want to... I got to dig more into this. Uh, apparently, they were offered $125,000 for the rights to the name Sleeper by a UK band, and that's why they changed their name to Serpico. Yeah, there's another band called Sleeper, and I knew that that was not the one you're talking about. Um, that That UK band, Sleeper... Uh, I mean, it was all in all the magazines in the 90s and stuff, too, for a bit there. It never really took off, and it was kind of lame, but I want to check out this sleeper. This sounds like the cool sleeper to check out. Yeah, you'll like it. Uh, on another episode of End on End, they have an interview with Scott Crawford, who made the Salad Days documentary, and he talks about the DOA Joe Keithley documentary he's working on. And that's oh, no great, yeah. Right on, yeah. And they also mention a label called Radio Rahim in their uh, episode, in the Void one. They're re reissuing a bunch of old hardcore records, specifically this United Mutation record that Discord originally co-released in the early 80s. And so I looked that label up on Discogs, and they reissued the Reign of Terror single, which is Jesse Fix of The Stains and Ed Danke of Worm. Oh, no way. Yeah. So I thought that was worth mentioning. A Joe doc would be great, man. Joey is hands down the best part of that uh, Iggy Pop four-part punk documentary. Yeah. When, when, when Joey comes into the scene and talks about starting out hardcore back then, that is of the, the four episodes. I've rewatched that one dozens of times. It's so good. Yeah, Joe's the man. And the documentary, as I understand it, is about one-third history of DOA, and then the rest of it follows Joe's political career. Oh, no way. And it's going to follow him into his next election. Cool. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, uh, Porno for Pyros did an unplugged performance in Perry Farrell's backyard with Watt on bass for this Lala 2020 uh stuff that happened this past weekend i love that first porno for, Py for pyros record i would kill for another full reunion uh with a with another album so i thought i should mention that you're a big janes fan right oh yeah huge yeah yeah it never really caught on for me i don't know what the heck it was i i must have a blockage there didn't get into janes one of my all-time favorite bands but that first porno for pyros too is as good as as the best janes addiction stuff in my opinion yeah, I've tried several times. It's probably time to try again. All right, Ryan, I'm going to take you to the comp zone. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, 1988, Imaginary Records, this British label that did a whole bunch of great tribute albums. I got a record called Fast and Bulbous, a tribute to Captain Beefheart. You ever heard of it? No. Great name, hey? Fast and Bulbous. Yeah. <laughs> it's got Dog-Faced Hermans on it, that band I mentioned a few few weeks ago. XTC is on it. The Scientists from Australia do Clear Spot. 
the nice. membranes ryan are on ooh. it Ooh, a bunch of other cool bands but there's an also an sst tie-in sonic youth does electricity on it right on and this label imaginary records they have a bunch of tribute albums there's a sid barrett one with opal doing the sun don't shine there's hmm. a couple velvet underground tributes with lee ronaldo buffalo tom screaming trees there's a couple bob dylan ones with henry kaiser lee ronaldo thurston kim and epic soundtracks do a song there's a nick drake tribute with no man which is roger miller which who we yeah, haven't yeah. seen yet but we will at some yeah. point i love those no man records and there's a birds comp uh, tribute with dinosaur jr doing i'll feel a whole lot better that one i've got yeah all those all those other ones i do not have wow well i'm and not that i would seek them out particularly but i'll keep my eyes out for them the uh the fast and bulbous one sounds good yeah okay ryan chris at org music via our podcast pal michael t fournier hooked us up with copies of the worm single and the sock tight smudge lp for review on the podcast did you listen to them i did not <laughs> i will though i will i'm gonna get look they're they're coming out like right away and i'll fight with everyone for a hard copy but i haven't listened to them did you listen to them of course i don't need a physical copy i want to hear the tunes that's the most important thing for me of course i would love to have one and i will try and buy them but if someone sends me a link i'm gonna check it out because i want to hear the tunes Honestly, I just haven't had the time with uh, listening to other stuff, and it just slipped through the cracks. I will check it out. Okay, well, here here comes the review. I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Spoil it. I don't mean to sound ungrateful. It's just, honestly, it's like when it's sitting on my computer, it's not on my radar. You know how you're doing this, uh, you know, get all your shit off your phone? Yeah. Guess how, much, guess how much music I have on my phone? How much? Zero. Right, because you have three iPods. Exactly. And I, and I have not like, look, I, I didn't, I got the link. I haven't put it on my iPod. I haven't, I haven't went anywhere to listen to my iPod. I'm listening to records all the time at home. It's like the only good thing about right now. So, well, you know, you can just listen to it on your, on your laptop. Yeah, I know. Okay. Uh, my, all of my excuses don't work. I get it. I get it. Just give the reviews. Okay. The two worm tracks rule so hard. They fit right in with the Feast and Exhumed tracks. Uh, it's Chuck, Loud Lou, Philo from Swa, etc. on guitar, and German Gonzalez on vocals. I don't know who that is, but he does a great job of standing in for Simon Smallwood. It's great stuff. I love both tracks. So I listened to the Dead Hippie record a bunch of times this week for some reason. Nice. Does, that, does that count? Sure, that counts. Okay, cool. Yep, you get points for that. All right, good, good, good. Hey, good. and there's a tie-in too. Simon gets a mention, I think, in the interview with Stuart. He totally does, man. Yep. Okay, the sock tight record for people who don't know, it's Watt and Raymond Pettibone's project. And actually, Ryan, I believe you have heard some of it because they've released two singles, which make up seven of the nine songs on this LP. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah. I've, I've heard almost all of it already. Yeah. There you go. Okay. It's also got Steve McKay from the Stooges on sax. Dirk Vandenberg plays some drums. Jerry Trebotic from the Second Mend 
plays some drums. Vince McGrooney from Bazooka plays sax on it, and there's some other performers as well. Those are just kind of the SS Tree ones. Great avant-garde jazz with Pettibone doing these kind of insane raps over top. Some of it reminds me of Bazooka, actually. And some of it reminds me of this great record on Sub Pop uh, by this poet Stephen Jesse Bernstein, who unfortunately took his own life before the record came out. So he, he only has the one. But if you've never heard that record, it's really good. Yeah, the Socktite stuff is out there. Yeah. Okay, last spiel. Uh, Rick White, Ryan, we've talked about the great Canadian band oh, yeah. Eric's Trip before. Uh, his Bandcamp page, it's called rickwhitearchive.bandcamp.com, has some amazing stuff if you're a fan of his solo albums, of Elevator, of Eric's Trip. He's got so much stuff on there. There's a deluxe edition of the Unintended record with a bunch of demos. That's oh, cool. the band he had with the Sadies and Greg Keeler of Blue Rodeo. There's a whole bunch of demos from all his bands. Both of his amazing solo records are on there. Actually, I think he has three solo records, and they're all really good. There's a bunch of live stuff from like some you know, radio shows. Uh, there's all kinds of great stuff. There, his first hardcore band called The Underdogs, their cassette is on there. Far out. And the reason I'm pointing it out is there's this awesome collection he has up there by a band called The Forest. This is was recorded around 1989. It's pre-Eric's trip. It's it's described on there as a three-piece loud guitar band in the style of those first two dinosaur albums we'd been digging so much. It's worth checking out for sure. Yep. Well, I mean, when Eric's trip started out, there are a lot of people that compared Rick to Jay Mascus, for sure. Yeah. And and for good reason, I suppose, but he also has his own thing going on. But that's cool. I, I've never checked out that page. I'll definitely check that out, because there's some... Uh, what's that one Eric's trip record that I played to death? Is it Love, Terra? Yeah, that's not on there. No, okay. But, I, well, I'm not... I'm just saying, like, what's the one that was a, you know, a hit for me, I suppose, that Rick that would on? That would be the one, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, I think, yeah. is pretty good, yeah. right? And uh, that Unintended record's not too bad, either. Yeah, there's some good stuff on there. It's You can definitely kill an hour just checking stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> Worst ways to do that. Yeah. That's it for me, Ryan. What do you have? All right, Brent, I think I've got three, maybe four spiels. First is just a quick rock doc note um, for the people. Actually ties into L.A. quite well. There's that Go-Go's documentary that was released. Um, I watched that. It's pretty cool. Where they, can you find that? I've seen a few people post about it. Yeah, it was, I think it's a Showtime documentary but i have it at least in canada anyways on uh, a service called crave okay and uh it was I, I watched it it's good they've got some really catchy stuff i mean and i and i of course um i i always had a bit of a crush on jane can't help it and she's got that killer um chapter in john doe's book as well yeah, she does yeah um there is some really really early 
Gogo's footage though of like like truly when they were a punk band at the mask and stuff like that. Um, it's very focused on them. It doesn't really go into you know sometimes they'll show some footage or talk about other bands in a documentary about a band. It's very focused on the Go-Go's. The only thing that caught me off guard is it seems to end like right at 2001 when they reformed and left like almost 20 years out of the documentary. And I I don't know what's going on there, but um, they definitely covered the heyday. Um, But the first 15, 20 minutes, very focused on the LA punk scene, which I thought was cool. My second spiel... I wanted to give you a bit of street cred because, yeah, street cred, because um, I think it was when you were doing letter F on your phone and you mentioned Fontaine's DC and, and uh, the record dog grill. And, and I was like, I don't remember you ever mentioning that. And you seem to suggest that you had mentioned it in your top 10 or something. And I'm like, why didn't I check it out? So I checked it out as I am with all your, you know, get your shit off your phone ones um, that aren't hair metal bands. And I'm checking out all of uh, the records. This one, though, I was like, why didn't I know about this one? Because it's definitely um, a bit of an homage to The Fall and Joy Division, but with a modern twist and in a really good way. And I just uh, really digging that record. Wanted to give you some street cred. But then they've they've also got a new one that came out. Yeah, it just came out. Yeah, A Hero's Death, and I was yeah. uh, checking that one out today and really liked that one. It it, uh, it came in the mail. I probably should have been listening to Worm and Sock Tight, but I was checking out <laughs> the new Fontaine's DC Wax. I can't help well, it. Well, why but, didn't you say that earlier? That excuses well, everything. Okay, all righty then. Um, <laughs> let me see here. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Oh, let me give you that DC tie-in. Faith. Brant, have you ever heard of a band called Bells of... No, never. Bells of. So I follow the Discord, um, what, whatever their social media thing is, and uh, one of these things popped up, and they're like, hey, hey, people, we've got an extra copy or two of this. We found it, blah, blah, blah. Alec McKay, 1985. So, and Alec McKay was in Faith, of course. Yep. And Lawrence McDonald, and uh, a guy named Pete Wilborn. Um, 500 copies recorded 1985 Don Ziantara and I'm like what is that why don't I know this and I can't believe when I checked it out that it slipped under my radar but it is totally the mid 80s I I mean a lot of people kind of shortcut it by saying revolution summer sound but it is kind of you know rites of spring embrace um, even some dag nasty kind of sounds to it um, I checked out the Bells of Record 00-85, and then I found out they've got like four or five other records that I have to check out now too, but completely slipped past me, Bells of. And uh, mm. if you're into the DC stuff, uh, definitely check that out. Um, it seems like they kept going for a while. I can't believe I don't know anything about them, but I'm going to start learning about them right now. Awesome. And then finally, Brent, um, this one is also, all these are for you, but this one in particular, Brent, have you been going through some doll withdrawal? <laughs> Always, man. If I don't have Jeff Dahl every day, I'm going through doll withdrawal. 
Brant, have you had enough Bruce Duff or do you need some more? I always need Duff. Okay, so you gifted me a while back this Jeff Dahl record, Wasted Remains of a Disturbing Childhood, because it has Dave Smalley on guest vocals and Dave Naz on drums. And uh, I got a couple of other Jeff Dahl records, and they're good. Um, I got, I, I just stumbled across them at the record store. Ultra Under yep. is, a, is a good record. Yep. But then I got this one, and my spiel... It's related to Jeff Dahl, but it isn't even really about Jeff Dahl. I got this other record by the Jeff Dahl group called Scratch Up Some Action. Yeah, that's an early one. It's got it's got Bruce Duff on it though, right? It does, but you know who else it has on it? Amy Witchman. Okay. Do you know Amy Witchman? Do you know I know that name, yeah. Okay. Amy also played in a band called Sister Goddamn Brandt. Right, with Bruce Duff. And Tony Adolescent, or yes. Tony Montana, which is a great record as well. Amy's playing never really stuck out to me, but then when I got this record, Scratch Up Some Action, I'm pretty sure it's her on this record versus Jeff Dahl, but I think she totally wails on this record. It's awesome. And then I'm like, who is this Amy Witchman? Um, I got her on this record... I've checked her out. I didn't really know, but now I know that she's on that Sister Goddamn record. She was also in a band called Chaos, with a K. An hmm. LA, LA punk band from the late 70s. You ever checked them out? No, never. So they, they had a single called Product of a Sick Mind, Chaos with a K. Amy Witchman, she was apparently in that band. I checked that out. I've got... I've got to get some chaos because that sounded good. And now I've got to get the rest of the Jeff Dahl group with Amy Witchman in particular. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Finally, you're coming on board with the doll. I'm, I've always been on board, but now I don't know. It's something, something really sunk in this week. Plus Jeff Dahl's um, fro and his MC5 back in the USA <laughs> sleeveless shirt on the front cover. Uh, you cannot deny that. You just cannot. He's rocking the hair. And you got that angry Samoans bootleg with him on vocals, right? Oh, yeah. You got to get the Samoans going, too, when you got some doll action. Yeah. That's it. Awesome. That's great, man. Are you are you surviving in your broister? Is it time to go over to Pedro? Yeah. Let's drive up from Pedro. History lesson, part one. All right, man. We've had all these tunes on before. And we've got Stuart on. Where do you want to take us? Well, I'm just going to give everyone a little recap. So, as you mentioned, this compilation, Postmerch Volume 1, it, it contains SST-004, The Punchline, which was one of our first episodes, obviously, October of 2017. And uh, we had Mike Watt on that episode talking about The Punchline. Yeah, and for people who don't know, like, when you listen to the show, we've mentioned this before, but w whenever you hear that, you know, history lesson part one, history lesson part two, the punchline, that's what. And he, he did that for us yeah. way early on. Uh, what a gracious guy. And uh, we just, uh, it kind of validated us right out of the gate. And that's why it's always special to do some Minutemen. Yeah, for sure. And then the other record on this compilation is... SST 014, What Makes a Man Start Fires. So people can go back and listen to those. Um, 
We've also heard these songs on SST 032, the My First Bells cassette tape, yeah. which has both of them on it. Right on. I was worried you wouldn't be a completist on your recap. Nice one. <laughs> it's 36 songs in 42 minutes on this post-merge comp, so they definitely live up to their name here. Interesting to note, Ryan, this came out on cassette and CD, post-merge volume one. Punchline originally came out on LP and cassette. Uh, so th this would have been its first release on CD because it came out in 1987. It later came out in 1992 as a standalone CD. The punchline did. What Makes a Man Start Fires was LP only and a standalone cassette and CD of that came out in 1991. So here's a quick little history lesson and then we'll kick it over to Stuart. Uh, their first gig as the Minutemen was Friday, May 30th, 1980 at LA's Harbor College with the Plugs, the Gears, Red Cross, and the Minutemen. So definitely still some first wave punk action going there. This is all stuff from Craig Abera's awesome A Wailing of a Town book, which you can still get on his website, by the way. Oh, yeah. Water Under the Bridge Records. Watt says in that book, we're schooled from 70s punk, Hollywood, but they're almost all gone by the time we start doing gigs. So we're doing gigs for all these people that weren't part of all that. Two different universes. The Minutemen are in between these worlds. Kind of the first wave of punk in the hardcore scene is what he's talking about. Yep. Frank Tonchi, I think is how we say it, was the drummer at this point. Brewers quoted in the book, Jack Brewer, the Minutemen were playing and Greg, this is at this first gig still, the Minutemen were playing and Greg Ginn was standing outside at the time. I knew Greg and I told him, you should go inside and check these guys out. I knew Greg was starting a label. Their second gig, June 9th, 1980, was at the Vanguard Gallery in LA with Black Flag, Middle Class, the Canadian Subhumans, the Crowd, and the Adolescents. Frank leaves the band after this gig, and they re recruit George from the band Hey Taxi. Paranoid Time is recorded at Media Art in Hermosa with Spot in July of 1980. Around that time, New Alliance Records 001, Cracks in the Sidewalk, comes out. This is in November of 1980, and the song 9.30 May 2nd, a leftover from Paranoid Time recording sessions, is used on that comp. The punchline is recorded three or four months after Paranoid Time, so sometime fall of 1980. SST wanted an album. Watt says, basically this recording was a gig in front of microphones. It's the songs we are playing at the gigs. This one was recorded in maybe two or three days at the most. Spot mixed it totally on his own without us there at the same exact place we were we recorded Paranoid Time. Due to finances, the record is delayed for over a year. They record and release the Joy EP, which is New Alliance 4. Uh, that's released August of 81, the same month it was recorded, and the punchline comes out in November of 1981. Around that time, Posh Boy releases a few comps. The Future Looks Bright, which you have a cassette of, Ryan. And that's got some songs off the punchline on it. The title track, it's got Warfare, Straightjacket, and Tension. And Rodney on the Rock Volume 2 has Search on it. 
They start gigging like crazy around this time, mainly with Black Flag. And then in July, August of 1982, they record What Makes a Man Start Fires. This is Unicorn Lawsuit Era for SST and Black Flag, so it comes out in January of 1983. It's a little bit delayed. Uh, in the meantime, they released the Bean Spill EP on Thermidor. Uh, much of this other stuff that I'm mentioning will be talking about on SST 165 post merch Volume 3. For the writing of What Makes a Man Start Fires, Watts laid up at home at his mom's house, recover, recovering from knee surgery, and Dee was living in Culver City and kind of socializing with the L.A. crowd a lot. He kind of leaves Watt to write all the music for the album, and Watt also puts all the words together with contributions from George and Dee. It kind of makes it unique in their catalog for this reason. Uh, summer of 82, Dee, Dee Boone moves back to Pedro, and they practice like crazy, Watt describes this session as another gig in front of microphones. Midnight to six at Music Lab in Hollywood, a place Spot had found, and Spot mixed the entire album at Total Access. That's it, Ryan. That's kind of the recap of, of where we're at. Everyone can go back and check out those older ep episodes if they want. And especially episode 32 to hear the Linda Kite interview as well. We should mention that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was a good one. Should we kick it over to Stuart? Let's do that. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Stuart Sweezy. Stuart, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. This is cool. So, Stuart, we've been talking about your awesome documentary on our podcast. I love the way it starts. It starts with you kind of 21 years old. It's 1982. And my favorite, well, not my favorite thing about it, there's many favorite moments, but I love the start because... A lot of this, these kinds of documentaries you hear about bands like X and The Germs, and those are all great bands, I love them, but you start talking about some of the more unusual bands from the scene. Take me back to yeah. some of those kind of bands like Human Hands or Vox Pop or even Monitor or, or uh, The Bee People, some of those bands. Yeah, that's cool that you, you rattled all those off and they weren't even in the film, but you, you definitely have the, the sensibility there, yeah. That was kind of like, to me, that was as, as much the L.A. scene as, as you know, some of the, the better known bands that ended up in the decline of Western civilization and stuff like that. Because, and, and I think all that kind of creativity and just not really trying to sound like anyone else, um, I, I, you know, it, it just sort of seemed like that's how it should be. That's what punk is. You know, that was kind of our attitude at that time. Yeah, and I think it probably helped you recognize the Minutemen as a standout you mentioned in the in the documentary that they were the band that really grabbed you yeah I mean I mean when when I became aware of them they they just like uh I couldn't believe that they existed you know that they were here in the LA area you know and that they had such an experimental approach and then in getting to know them and, and years later, you know, being able to interview Mike Watt, you know, I realized that all those kind of bands that you were talking about, like the monitors and the, even people like Boyd Rice that were just playing, you know, complete noise at that time, that that was the stuff that they were into also, you know, even though Mike's become this incredible bass player and amazing, you know, musician that, that all, all that kind of really just um, out there stuff was, 
important, like the screamers, you know, I think that, you know, they, they were in the film and, and, uh, you know, for people that don't know them, because, you know, they never really put a record out. They were only keyboards and, and, and drums and, and just had a very kind of psycho uh, lead singer, Tomato Duplenty. And so, you know, the, again, that was kind of like the, what the Minutemen were coming out of, in a sense, you know, the next generation of that, and as well as people like Black Flag that, you know, were obviously, you know, mentors in the sense of uh, SST Records, putting the, the Minutemen on their tours and putting putting something that was pretty um, unusual and kind of uh, not your standard punk rock, hardcore band in front of these crowds that, that weren't ready for that at all, you know, which like Saccharin Trust too, which for was sure. fun to watch, you know, <laughs> that reaction. Those early New Alliance comps that they put out, you know, right off the get-go are super eclectic and really amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I think that was kind of like, that was part of our coming into the scene was, was this idea that, you know, it, it didn't have to be rock and roll, you know, the, the, and the Minutemen were definitely, you know, they, they kind of gave you the best of both worlds, I think, because they were so energetic and like such really talented musicians, but they didn't do things in, in the conventional ways, let's say that the Ramones did or somebody right. like that, right. even though I think obviously the Ramones w would have been a big influence on them too. For sure. So when I gave you the option of doing this one or volume two, Postmerge volume two, you didn't delay. You said, I want the first one. The punchline was the entry point for me. Yeah. I, I mean, then I went back and, and listened to Buzz and Hal and I'm like, wow, there's so many great songs on that. But um, yeah, I, I didn't really feel like I, I could I could speak to Project Mersh as much. So I, I thought it'd be better as well as I still remember the day that that I picked up, you know, the punchline and you know, D Boone painting on the cover and, you know, uh, I was at Rhino Records and it just, yeah, it, it was kind of like uh, a real revelation. I didn't, I, I knew about Wire then, uh, but I didn't know the pop group. And so I didn't have, you know, I didn't know, I mean, I, I knew the fall, but like I did, I didn't feel like there was LA people doing that kind of thing. Maybe the urinals to some degree, yeah. but, um, you know, the Minutemen just like, so many songs and then the lyrics were just so like, abstract but meaningful uh at the same time so yeah it just kind of blew my mind and then you could see him back then you know five nights a week practically you know not that i did every week but i mean i'm sure there were weeks where i saw the minutemen three or four times you know and just they were always like super high energy like they were so i think just stoked to be playing somewhere you know to an audience it didn't right. matter how many people were, you know had you seen them already do you know when when the punchline came out no, I, I, I got the record and then I, I realized like I, I gotta find out more about these guys. Yeah. And and then I think I saw them uh I believe it was, you know, Club eighty eight or the music machine, something like that. It was on Pico Boulevard, um, for what it's worth. Um yeah, and that's when I hit them up to do an interview for, for this cassette zine called Non Plus. because um, I, I just was like I knew the woman who was editing it, and, and I was like, oh, these guys are amazing. And then their first reaction was, no, we don't do interviews because they're bourgeois. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that sucks. You know? And, and then, then it was like, no, actually, we decided that not doing interviews is bourgeois, so let's do it. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> now, I think I read somewhere that this was 
might even be the actual first interview that they did. It, it might well be. I mean, I, that was kind of like, I don't think they had done interviews because because that was what the, the 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 internal debate you know between right d boone and and mike and george was about like whether they were even going to do them so yeah it's short <laughs> in the spirit of the minutemen but but i thought they said some really really you know uh cool stuff that that was you could see that they'd thought a lot about what they were doing already that in those early days right now this zine non-plus this was a it was released on cassette yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, that was the concept. It was a little, you know, uh, a cassette with like, uh, you know, it would be attached to a cardboard thing with the, you know, what was inside. And it, it wasn't all, you know, I mean, some of it would be like, I, I, I think, you know, X, the Flesh Eaters were in, in, in the one with the Minutemen, but there was also like Echo and the Bunny Men and whoever, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, New Wave and Punk both, you know. Right. Now, why did you interview them? Were you like, were you trying to be a writer, thinking about getting into writing? Did you just, were you just wanting to uh, capture the Minutemen? What was the, what was the idea behind, behind interviewing uh, them? I mean, I think I was just enthusiastic about this band that I had discovered in, for myself, not, you know, and I just wanted to like talk to them, like, you know, have an excuse to kind of see where, where they were coming from and, and kind of learn more about them as people and and so it was it was like a good way to do that you know sort right. of a a fan based kind of thing okay so back to the documentary another one of my favorite parts is where it's talking about you know the police violence and that just totally awesome clip of chuck on tv saying the police are the nazi movement yeah <laughs> were you around for some of that stuff yeah i mean uh I was around for enough that you kind of started to take it for granted that, you know, uh, you would get shut down, cops would show up, you'd get some, you'd get to a gig and it would already be shut down and there'd be, you know, cop cars all around. But I would say there were some definitely police riots, which um, the one that I, I distinctly remember being at uh, was, was the one that we show in, in the film uh which is also uh there's a still uh but from the photographer gary leonard where you see the the lapd riot squad in front of the hollywood palladium and it was like the ramones black flag and the minutemen played that night and i remember you know the, i mean that also ended up on the cover of uh henry rollins book get in the van um so uh that was just that was a pitched you know, battle, except it was, it was completely one-sided. You know, the cops showed up with SWAT teams and, and, you know, people were just leaving the Palladium. And I mean, I was tripping and I was like, whoa, what the fuck have I just walked into, you know? Um, and it, it was, it was pretty intense. Yeah. But I mean, people could tell you about other, other ones. Um, I know there was a, um, kind of a, a famous one down in, in San Pedro, uh, that Linda Kite talks about, uh, you know, where, where, you know, people were really badly beaten. I remember, but I remember, you know, seeing just the, the cops haul off with batons and just really wail on people. Like there was this guy, Simon, who was in this band, Dead Hippie. I mean, you couldn't have found a more, you know, um, gentle, like nonviolent person. And he just got wailed on, you know. So it was, it was an intense time for sure. 
Yeah, Simon, uh, he also sang for Worm. We've we've mentioned them many times on the oh. podcast. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then just going back to the to the documentary. So you you go see Throbbing Gristle, which you mention is kind of a a show that really had a strong effect on you. And I and I mean again, I think it's awesome that you went and saw Throbbing Gristle. It just again points to the the willingness to just you know, your musical tastes are, are all over the place, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it was one of those things where, you know, it, it, Throbbing Gristle, I didn't really know, I couldn't have named one song, I don't think, by them. It was more just like they were supposed to be really intense and, you know, they were in town and, and it was it was at this venue where you didn't normally see bands. It was called the, the Culver City Veterans Auditorium. And um, they were just so loud and, and um, you know, kind of had this really punk spirit, but using a lot of electronics. And um, also, I remember they had, like, Martin Denny music combined with, like, 50s stag films going as, like, the opening, you know, before uh, Vox Pop came on. And it was all just kind of new and different, and I, did, I didn't know what the hell was going on, but I, I was really kind of fascinated there was Swa and Vox Pop opened for oh, okay. Throbbing yeah. Gristle. So yeah. thinking of the SST uh, you know, aspects of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was all kind of, you know, interrelated in there somewhere um, between the punk scene and, and that kind of more experimental, um, you know, electronic world. Right. So seeing this show kind of gives you the, uh, the notion that you this is something you want to do, start promoting shows. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I was really intrigued with this idea of like sort of transforming this environment by by what they were doing, and 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 then I met the promoter, uh, this guy named who's no longer with us, Michael Shepard, who had put that show together and lots of other ones around that time, and I kind of was just like, well, how do you do this, you know? And and uh, I think he was just interested in, in, in passing on what he knew to like a young person that, that kind of wanted to get into this stuff. So he took me around to all the different record stores where you could sell tickets and, and kind of showed me the ropes. Um, and uh, so then I started doing, you know, small scale gigs around uh, places around LA where again, it wasn't like at a nightclub, uh, but it would be more like a, a rehearsal space or a loft space in downtown LA or, or, or things like that. And the Minutemen were, you know, among the, the first people that I started doing those shows with, because we were all having trouble, you know, uh, getting places to play again, because of this, this uh, LAPD kind of uh, repression, you know, they, they, right. they really were try, trying to keep punk rock from happening. Okay, so then you do your first desert show, then you head over to, to Berlin. Tell me about your time over there. You must have saw some amazing bands while you were over there. You know, I I did see, I mean, two bands that blew me away um, and that I ended up doing Desolation Center Desert shows with in Berlin first. I saw Einstürz and Neubauten, um, heard of uh, before I got there, but didn't really know that much about. Um, but, you know, I was friends with uh, Bruce Leischer, who was one of the founders of Savage Republic. 
and they were already doing metal percussion types of stuff. And there was a guy named Ethan Port who ended up becoming part of Savage Republic. And he was the one that told me like, check out these guys collapsing new buildings. So in the back of my mind, I was always like, I'm gonna get to Berlin and I'm gonna see this band that plays, you know, power tools and bangs on metal and, and uh, you know, screams in German. And, and then the other band that I saw there uh, was Sonic Youth, who also, you know, I ended up doing the last desert show with, along with the Meat Puppets and Red Cross and Perry Farrell's band at the time, Psycom. And that was fairly early days for Sonic Youth. You know, they had not played out on the West Coast. And uh, again, like, I was just sort of amazed at what I saw. As far as other other gigs, you know, that weren't those two, it, it, I don't remember anything really standing out, you know, like I, I, I don't think I saw a Nick Cave or whatever. I mean, I'd seen the birthday party back in that time, but not in Berlin. Right. Um, so, yeah, those were the two that, that, you know, out of all the like going out drinking and checking out bands that, that really stood out in my mind. Another thing I really liked in the movie, another part was when you set up this show with Neubotten and they invite, I believe, Mark, Pauline, and Survival Research Laboratories to play at the show. So when did, when did you find out that was happening? And did you know that, what you were what you were getting into? I mean, I knew who they were because um, I had this book uh, that Research Publications put out called the Industrial Culture Handbook, and in that book was like interviews with with Mark Pauline, with uh, Robin Gristle, with with SPK and you know, Monty Kazaza and all these people that, that a lot of them up in the Bay Area um, and that, that I, I was kind of like, wow, this is so cool. Like this is this kind of crazy world of, you know, sort of post punk, but but very much uh, coming out of that that sensibility. And um, so Mark Pauline being an artist who uses uh, machines and, you know, created these robots and and um dead animal parts and, you know, put all this stuff together to make these sort of surreal contraptions. So I knew about that, but just, you know, only just from, from seeing it in a book. Right. And, um, and then when I started to know about, and first they said, well, we're going to be in LA, you know, we're playing the night before at Perkins palace, but let's do a desert show. Um, and, and so then once we decided, yeah, we're going to do that. And I got the school buses lined up to, take to transport people out to the location you know they did a bit of of the uh kind of uh bringing together these different elements because they knew mark pauline they knew boyd rice and so they're like yeah so you know uh mark pauline wants to come talk to him you know and and so everybody was very much i think just excited to be part of this event so i remember with mark pauline i, I probably just said yeah you know all i can do is give you guys gas money and they're like okay <laughs> we're coming you know and so because uh, of, you know, the limitations of being out in the desert and just having, you know, basically one vehicle to drive down in, um, they weren't able to bring all of their machines and stuff like that. So what they ended up doing is just basically bringing explosives <laughs> and finding, you know, old refrigerators and all this stuff out in the desert. I mean, it's very improvised. I don't know how much of it they planned or didn't plan. So as far as what did I know? I don't think I realized they were going to come down there just with like homemade black powder and blow stuff up. I, but you know, <laughs> I found out. 
All right. Some of my favorite footage is of the Joy at Sea trip. Now, how fortunate is it that all this footage exists and, and survived? Like, uh, did, who was documenting all of this stuff? Was it you? I mean, I can't really take credit for, for any of the documenting. I, I did, in some cases, work more closely with people that filmed it, like like the, the second Desert Show with, with Ein Schertz and about and I, I was kind of making sure that, you know, the people that wanted to film it were able to film it. With with Joy at Sea, I, I think I was so, like, just caught up in the whole, like, getting everybody on the boat and, like, getting the boat out in the <laughs> harbor and, and just the details of it. I don't remember... A, a lot of discussion about videotaping, but I know that, you know, Joe Carducci, you know, I've talked to people since, and um, I think he wanted to make sure that it was videotaped. So there was two people, uh, I believe, I think one of them was Dave Travis, and then the other is this guy named Eureka Mike, who now lives up in, in Eureka, California. And a lot of the footage disappeared, was from what I've heard from Dave Travis. Oh. And there was going to be this legendary compilation called corn dogs or something like that anyway whatever it is i thought all the footage didn't exist and then come to find out that eureka mike had started posting stuff on youtube so i saw it and you know then the problem was like a lot of the meat puppets stuff the audio was pretty unusable i mean you know um i mean <laughs> they're loud and, and noisy right. but it, it was yeah it wasn't that um and so i a lot of what made the film work, I think, is different people coming forward with different things. And one of the things was a guy named Bob Durkee, who was at all the shows and, and um, brought his Sony Walkman. So when he kind of came out of the woodwork on Facebook and said, like, yeah, I have audio of all this stuff, we were able to put it together with, with the video. And, and that's kind of like a lot of some of the choices we made about which songs were in the Joy at Sea section and stuff had to do with, you know, how the video looked, how the audio looked, and kind of making the best out of, of what we had. The ending of the documentary, the Swans, Sonic Youth, Saccharine Trust show, kind of ends on a down note with, you know, Lee's playing through D Boone's Twin Reverb at that show, and then it turns out to be the night that, uh, that D Boone passed. And the, this is a sentiment that's been repeated before, but that when D. Boone died, kind of the heartbeat of the scene, I think, is how Thurston Moore puts it in the documentary, kind of died as well. Was that something you felt? I definitely felt it. I felt it to the degree that, you know, um, I don't even think I consciously knew at that moment. It was more that, I think, you know, a lot of people that were, I don't know, I mean, because D. Boone was somebody that I actually, you know, was friends with, We'd have barbecues together, hang out. And so, you know, you didn't look at him as this bigger-than-life person that I see him as maybe now. So, you know, part of it was just losing a human being that, that was a really amazing person. And then part of it was this bigger kind of thing of what is a scene and, and what makes a scene. And, and you realize that, yeah, one person can be that important, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, so I think everybody kind of started to go in different directions. And, I mean, I think... Um, Dave Markey in the film said it really well, you know, uh, about that the utopia kind of unraveled. Yeah, but, you know, may, maybe that was just the age we were getting to, or maybe that was also the, you know, the record business starting to discover that this kind of music could, could be 
popular. You know, I, I think it was a lot of different things, but losing D Boone just kind of made it hard to get back in there and go do stuff because you know he just wasn't going to be there anymore. I don't know. It, 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 I, I only really realized many years later how how significant that was. I think it was just such a shock at the time. Yeah. Okay, tell me what you did next then. Tell me about your publishing company, Amok Books. I took a little break after doing the last Desert Show. I mean, sorry, the last uh, Desolation Center show, which is the one that you talked about, the Solstice Show. And I was trying to figure out um, what would be a way to express the ideas. Because I'm not a musician, um, and, and doing the, the, the kind of like site-specific events was a creative thing for me but I wanted to try something different and I think again I look back on it like I was very influenced by the research publications at the time uh, where in the industrial culture handbook they would have these lists of, of books and you know, cult films and things like that so we had this idea that we were me and like probably about 10 friends we we're going to have this collective called Amok and we we're going to open a, a store and it would be like an underground bookstore where you could also rent videos and some of it would be anarchist and in situationist things, and some of it would be more like just really, you know, outside the bounds of like good taste or or, or anything like that. Um, literature, also surrealism. Anyway, so then we but we realized like we don't really have the money to open a bookstore, so we we ended up doing a, a mail order catalog, and and for people, you know, it's been a while now, but I mean back then there was no internet to get your information from uh there was no amazon and so the idea of, of distributing this sort of subversive information kind of helped us get focused on what we were doing so that we were able to open a store about eight months later and but then the catalog was also kind of like a way to express these sort of ideas so um the catalog ended up becoming a really huge source book and all kinds of people were contributing to it writing book reviews and stuff like that and then um, I also started publishing books. Um, so it was kind of like all these things going on at the same time. The, the book catalog became a source book. The bookstore became kind of a hub of, of uh, underground things. And, and then um, as well, I started publishing uh, books. How long did the bookstore run for? The bookstore was from uh, 88 to uh 97 so roughly 10 years and then it kept going a little bit longer uh i mean that was when i i was kind of done with the bookstore and then uh kept going a little bit longer um maybe another year and then sort of dissipated into you know sort of different mail order catalogs and online and, and things like that right but um we had two locations one in silver lake and then one in, in los feliz and um, we were about to open uh, in 92 in the second location, which was right when all the L.A. riots started and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> What's next now that the documentary's out? Are you doing any more special screenings or are those kind of winding down now that the, the documentary's out on streaming sites? Well, uh, it's a combination of that we got to the point where I think I was starting to wind down the screenings. We did one in New York. Uh, the last one we did, we had uh, Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth and Lee Ronaldo there with us doing doing the Q&A. Um, 
Paul Rackman, who who was the director of American Hardcore, was was the moderator, and then there's another uh, person, Jen Pelly, who is a, a writer in New York. And then um, pretty much after that, the the COVID stuff that was at the IFC Center, and then you know uh, COVID started to shut down things um, pretty rapidly, um, and so I kind of felt like it was a good time to get the streaming. Uh, up and going um, to make the film, you know, available to people while while we're all dealing with quarantine and stuff. And then now we've actually decided to do a drive-in screening of Desolation Center. So we're we're, we're getting that organized, and and I'm actually working on that today. So I think we're going to have um, an opportunity to do that and also have some live music. I mean, one of the things that we did uh, in New York in August was uh, we did a, a, a outdoor screening that was like the most desolation center of our screening. <laughs> it was in a cemetery called the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which is like one of the only big open spaces in New York. And then Lee Ronaldo has this thing where he takes a guitar and and you know hangs it off of a of a like a, a crane so that it swings around and creates feedback. So he was kind of like performing after the screening and uh, just it was a really really cool event so we're going to do some something like that i'm not sure what yet exactly but something noisy and cool as part of this drive-in uh screening that's great yeah the number of people you were able to nail down and interview for the documentary is really outstanding did you miss anybody was anybody on your list that you you weren't able to pin down well, yeah, I mean, Kim Gordon, I, I would like to have been able to, to have her in it as well. But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think she in the film, you can see her performing, but as far as interviews go. Um, and I think that was there was a lot of elements involved in being awkward. I mean, I've certainly seen her and talked to her about it, and, and she seems very supportive of the film. So but but that's that's probably the one that got away, you know. OK, you mentioned Steve. We actually talked to Steve a few weeks ago for the podcast, and he mentioned a possible soundtrack to the film coming out. What can you tell me about that? Well, again, uh, you know, Steve actually saw the film for the first time at that screening at the IFC Center because he, he's like, look, I, I'm you know, all about analog, and, and I just want to see it in a movie theater. I, I want to wait, you know, and we hadn't really screened in a movie theater yet. And he was somewhere else when Lee did the one that was at the cemetery. Um, so so that night, he, he was like, wow, this is amazing. I'd love to do the soundtrack. And I was just like, kind of blown away because, you know, uh, it, it, that that seemed like a, like a great opportunity to work with him, you know, and, and really take some of this to another level. And then Bob, the guy that I mentioned that had all the audio recordings, um, he and I had been talking about a soundtrack. So um, I think that the, the three of us are gonna gonna work together and, wow. and put it on Steve's label. It all seems to be coming together um, pretty well. Uh, we actually are also talking to Third Man Recordings um, about a sort of like a limited edition 45 with live uh sonic youth on one side and live red cross on the other both from one of the yeah, the last desert show that they played wow. at yeah my podcast partner ryan is a physical media guy he specifically asked me to ask is there going to be a dvd okay a yeah yes 
for sure there'll be a DVD. And I think the only reason that we haven't really put it out yet is just because I really want it to be kind of a um, collectible extra with, with, you know, special features that, that um, kind of bring more to, to the project than what you can see in the film, you know, extended interviews with people like Blixa and, you know, other, other people that, you know, you just, you want to see more when you, when you see the film. For sure. um, and so uh, I just haven't had time to actually put that all together, but it, it's definitely in the works and, and we'll probably be working with um, Bruce Leischer from Savage Republic, who also does independent project press. Um, you know, he, he, he's a great designer. So I think he will be doing our LP package and also the DVD package. Oh, wow. So, if Ryan wants, I mean, there is a DVD version of it that, that you know, but we just haven't released it yet. So Okay, great. Where can people go for more info? Well, uh, the, the best thing to do is go to desolationcenter.com. And it's just all one word. Um, and there's a lot of info there. You, um, you can see the trailer for the film. You can figure out, you know, what's your best choice for for. Uh, streaming, um, there's a lot of different options depending on, you know, uh, how you you want to do it. And um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's probably the best bet. Um, and there's 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 more articles and photos and things like that as well. All right. What else are you working on? What's next for your plans? Are any more documentary work? Yeah, I mean, I I, I love making documentaries i i you know this is the first one that i was able to 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 direct and i feel like you know I, I learned a lot from it um also i have a background in um tv production that i think you know enabled me to be able to put this together the way i did so i'm kind of working on some some different projects um some that are more on the streaming sort of uh you know netflix hulu kind of kind of uh thing um and then also i'm, I'm do you, i don't know if you know the the music group Leibach from slovenia um they're they're really interesting i i published one of the amok books that we published was like this sort of uh monograph of of Leibach and and, and the other artists that they work with in slovenia that, that did these big theater projects and and art and 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 um so anyway i'm working on a project with somebody uh who's done a lot of their films um, with a, uh, this guy is, is a theater, Slovenian theater director who's also a Russian trained cosmonaut. So it's kind of a set in the future where he, he goes into outer space to bring culture and art to space instead of militarism. Um, and it, it's, uh, but it, it'll be told as a documentary. And I guess I'm producing it and also gonna be sort of interviewing him and, and and going through this whole experience with with Dragon. So that's something that I'm I'm working on. And uh, there's an author, uh, John Gilmore, who uh, we as a Muck Books we published about I think about five of his books. One of them was about the Black Dahlia case, and one of them was called uh, Laid Bare. And he's just led this really interesting life. And so I, I'm working with his son on on telling his story. It's kind of like a dark look at, at Hollywood and um, so so the you know different stuff in various phases right okay again when I asked you to be on this show you s singled out the punchline and you said I want to I need some time to listen 
to the punchline again. Yeah. So did you get a chance to listen to it? Yes, I, I, I did, and I appreciate you giving me a little uh, <laughs> yeah, time to, to you know, because there's so many amazing Minutemen songs. It kind of blows me away, and and I, I'll, oftentimes I don't know the names of them. I just sort of, I, I know, you know, the lyrics or, or the, the, the sound of them or whatever. So right. I just wanted to make sure I was talking about the right ones, you know, for, for your project here. Okay, so what are the standout tracks for you? Which are the ones that bring you back? I think when, when search, I mean, you know, you, you start off punchline with that and it's just like that kind of just gives you that rush of, of Minutemen experience. And, um, and then the other one that really uh, got to me um, was uh, history lesson, you know, yeah. history lesson one. I hadn't really thought about that one in a while because history lesson part two, you know, we, we, we put it into the into the film and it, it, it has a lot of meaning in terms of, of, you know, the Minutemen experience, but history, I remember hearing that and just thinking, wow, they just told the whole history of like human evolution and, 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 you know, philosophy and everything in like a minute, like what <laughs> who does that, you know, and it's just super ambitious, but in a really unpretentious way. And so I just, I'd love that. Yeah. yeah. And then also I, I really saw this whole, overall kind of thing that was very relevant to what we're going through now in terms of uh, Black Lives Matter and kind of rethinking, you know, uh, American history and stuff like that. And, and the, um, again, I always forget the names of songs, but, you know, the one about Custer died with, you know, shit in his pants and, you know, <laughs> I mean, just the, the, the whole like kind of like tearing down these American myths and, and really, you know, being open about, you know, racial inequality and things like that. There was, so, yeah, so much going on there. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Stuart, thanks so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Brent, it's been awesome. Really a pleasure. And, and uh, you know, thanks for letting me, you know, talk about spiel, as Mike Watt would say, about <laughs> the Minutemen. You know, it's totally an honor. So thank you. Yeah, we love your documentary. So, again, congratulations. Well, thanks so much. Right on. Great interview uh, and some great uh, anecdotes about the Minutemen in particular. The thing that, you know, that I, I was interested in hearing about that or that stuck out, I should say, was the piece about, you know, not really knowing the song names for the Minutemen. And, yeah, and, and Minutemen is like one of those bands where there are so many songs. It is hard to know the song names. And then, but when the song comes on on the record, you're just, you're totally rubbernecking. You're like, yeah. And, and, and he's oh, yeah. right. Like there's a couple of songs on the punchline that are just insane. And, um, I don't know, I was digging it. I think I was digging it more this time than on our fourth episode. Yeah. Oh, I was for sure. Yeah. It was great talking to Stuart. Um, he mentions this interview that he did with them the Minutemen, one of probably their first interview in this non-plus cassette zine, number three. You can hear the interview on YouTube. The whole cassette is up there, and there's an interview with X, Super Heroines, and also the Flesh Eaters, and they play some songs, too. It's kind of sp spliced together like a radio show, almost. It's really cool. In the interview, they talk about losing Martin as a vocalist in the Reactionaries. Right. That's, that's how early this interview is. 
And Watt, of course, mentions Pop Group and Captain Beefheart in the interview. Yep. D. Boone in the interview goes, Art is something everyone should participate in. There's no good art or bad art. There's just art. Hmm. I liked uh, both in the documentary and the, and the interview where he's talking about that throbbing gristle show with Vox Pop and Swa. I'm pretty sure that was Swa's first show where Chuck just went out with an acoustic guitar. Oh, no way. And I think he was flanked by like maybe Mugger and Trump, Tom Tricoli who were kind of dressed up like as security guards. I don't remember the story, but pretty sure that was that show. Wow, man. To see some of the stuff, hey? Yeah. I like what Stewart said about this record, something along the lines of lyrically they're talking about tearing down some of the American myths and being open about racial inequality For sure. and how that's very uh, topical, I guess, today yeah. still. Relevant? Yeah, it's never stopped being relevant. It just becomes topical every two years, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> it's too bad. Yeah. But yeah, it was great talking to Stuart and great documentary too. Like if you, if people haven't seen it yet, you really, really should seek that out. Do you want to talk about the tracks just a little bit, Ryan? Sure, man. History lesson, part two. So did you catch the uh, how the CD has got some tracks kind of out of order? No, does it really? Yeah. So like on the actual compact disc itself the disc it has um tracks 21 and 22 fake contest beacon sighted through fog those are switched around on the disc they play in the right order on the cd oh i see yeah, yeah. i thought you meant they resequenced it no or no they just they they just wrote them down on the actual compact disc um incorrectly and then tracks 24 and 25 Eastwind slash Faith and Pure Joy uh, switched around. But that's the other thing, too, I've never noticed is that on the record, the song Faith is just Faith, but on this one, it's Eastwind Faith. Hmm. Yeah. Never caught that before. I don't know why that is. Do you recall what our ballot results were for these two records? Ooh. I got to think for the punchline, it was search. Yep. And for what makes a man start fires, I probably would have wanted the anchor. But what did we pick there? I think you picked Beacon Sighted Through Fog, actually. Beacon Sighted Through Fog, yeah. Those are my like two of my faves, for sure. I'm not surprised at that. Yep. Um, but Stuart's right. Like, search is, like, it, it, it just catches you on the first three seconds of that song right when georgie's just hitting the hi-hat and you're like what is that boom and it's right on it's awesome yeah yeah some highlights for me were the song boiling disguises i really liked the distance between black and white is much further than i would like until now i've never noticed that fascism has many disguises mm -hmm. ruins that's the one where watts shouting culture moves the hands that one's really good. Uh, the title track, I think Stuart mentions in the interview, I believe when they found the body of General George A. Custer quilled like a porcupine with Indian arrows, he didn't die with any honor, any dignity, or any valor. valor. Yeah. Yep. He died with shit in his pants, didn't he? Yep. Fanatics 
is cool. There's no guitar in that song. No Parade was a highlight. There's no parades for these heroes. And all I can line up are the widows. Yeah, the the poetry from Watt and Boone at this time is so abstract and political. It's just yeah. it's just punch after punch. That's why it's the punchline, I bet. I don't know. George wrote a lot of these lyrics, too. Yeah. Maybe wrote, more on What Makes a Man. I think he wrote more on What Makes a Man. Like, the anchor is a big one for me that he wrote, I think, right? Yeah, he did, yeah. Uh, on What Makes a Man, Bob Dylan wrote pop- propaganda songs. That was probably my ballot result pick way back when, because I've always loved that song. I like on that song, I I don't know if I've ever noticed this before, but uh, when, when Dubun's singing, he's going information labeled Russians. <laughs> he does a little Johnny Rotten thing. Uh, one chapter in the book has that kind of bass-driven melody that you'll see later on. Definitely, you know, you can tell some of the stuff was written by Watt, the music. Beacon Sighted Through Fog. That's one of the two that has Joe Baiza on guitar along with East Wind Faith. 99's a good song with lyrics by George. Oh, yeah. The Anchor, Split Red, is kind of a jazzy tune. This Road is good. Yeah, I was digging all of this stuff, man. Yeah, it's great. They And it's, you know, both of these full lengths back-to-back, they are, they're recorded more than a year apart, right? But they, they hardly miss a beat once you go from one record to the other. Yeah. One thing I didn't do, Ryan, I mean, we've talked about the artwork for the individual releases, but I didn't really look at the artwork too much for the actual post-merge comp. Like the CD? Yeah. Yeah, well, the back is just text. Same with the actual compact disc. The front cover reproduces the two album covers. And again, one, uh, the punchline is a, like, that's a D. Boone painting, right? Yeah, and then yeah, uh, Watt talks about that painting in our interview. I remember that specifically. Yeah, and then what makes a man start fires is a a pettibone piece, a very very famous pettibone piece. Um, the the CD card, I guess, or whatever, when it folds out, it's got the same artwork as uh, the punchline on the inside, and same with what makes a man. They've got the um, the labels from the actual vinyl LPs, some pictures of those as well on the, the back of the card. So hmm. they it, it really seems like they wanted to have all of the original artwork with this comp, you know? Yeah. The full package, the full package of the LP so that the listener could ex- still experience it on this comp. Yeah, it's cool, man. And I think these came out like in long box versions too, back in the day. Oh, yeah? Yeah. My CD is so old, it's faded. It's not even, it's not even yellow. It's like peach colored. It was originally yellow. Must have been sit- sitting in the sun for a while. I think we're ready for the ballot result, man. Let's do it. Ballot result. So I probably would have picked Beacon Sighted Through Fog. We probably were both in favor of search. Yep. What do we pick here? I know there's lots of good ones. My highlights were the anchor, 99, Bob Dylan, no parade, 
Ruins. All those are good. Probably my favorite is the Anchor, but Ruins is good too. We can do the Anchor. We're going to get another chance probably again with some of these songs because I think there's a Introducing the Minutemen comp. That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we better do the Anchor, man. It's a classic. It is. It is. And you know, like I, I said it a, a while back on the show here, these comps are a bit mersh, but they're also really important. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, there's no way I could find a copy of the punchline or what makes a man start fires. You would find either post merch volume one and two double nickels or introducing the Minutemen. Those were the four discs that you could find from the Minutemen, at least where I grew up. Anything else? Forget it. Yeah, for sure, man. Hey, and uh, thanks to Stuart for being on the podcast. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, we're going to uh, continue on with the Minutemen in Pedro here. It's going to be SST 139 Post Mersh Volume 2. And we've got a special guest, Brant. Yeah, a really special guest. Kind of an interesting interview. We've got John Golden on the podcast who mastered <laughs> probably over half of the records we've talked about so far on this show. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.